Chapter Eleven, Part One of Sons and Lovers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Sons and Lovers, by D. H. Lawrence, Chapter Eleven: The Test on Miriam. With the spring came again the old madness in battle. Now he knew he would have to go to Miriam, but what was his reluctance? He told himself it was only a sort of overstrong virginity in her and him, which neither could break through. He might have married her, but his circumstances at home made it difficult, and moreover he did not want to marry. Marriage was for life, and because they had become close companions, he and she, he did not see that it should inevitably follow they should be man and wife. He did not feel that he wanted marriage with Miriam. He wished he did. He would have given his head to have felt a joyous desire to marry her and to have her. Then why couldn't he bring it off? There was some obstacle. And what was the obstacle? It lay in the physical bondage. He shrank from the physical contact. But why? With her, he felt bound up inside himself. He could not go out to her. Something struggled in him, but he could not get to her. Why? She loved him. Clara said she even wanted him. Then why couldn't he go to her, make love to her, kiss her? Why, when she put her arm in his, timidly, as they walked, did he feel he would burst forth in brutality and recoil? He owed himself to her. He wanted to belong to her. Perhaps the recoil and the shrinking from her was love in its first fierce modesty. He had no aversion for her. No, it was the opposite. It was a strong desire battling with a still stronger shyness and virginity. It seemed as if virginity were a positive force which fought and won in both of them. And with her he felt it so hard to overcome, yet he was nearest to her, and with her alone could he deliberately break through. And he owed himself to her. Then, if they could get things right, they could marry but he would not marry unless he could feel strong in the joy of it. Never. He could never have faced his mother. It seemed to him that to sacrifice himself in a marriage he did not want would be degrading, and would undo all his life, make it a nullity. He would try to do what he could do. And he had a great tenderness for Miriam. Always she was sad, dreaming her religion, and he was nearly a religion to her. He could not bear to fail her. It would come all right if they tried. He looked round. A good many of the nicest men he knew were like himself, bound in by their own virginity, which they could not break out of. They were so sensitive to their women that they would go without them forever, rather than do them a hurt, an injustice. Being the sons of mothers whose husbands had blundered rather brutally through their feminine sanctities, they were themselves too diffident and shy. They could easier deny themselves than incur any reproach from a woman, for a woman was like their mother, and they were full of the sense of their mother. They preferred themselves to suffer the misery of celibacy, rather than risk the other person. He went back to her. Something in her, when he looked at her, brought the tears almost to his eyes. One day he stood behind her as she sang. Annie was playing a song on the piano, 
As Miriam sang, her mouth seemed hopeless. She sang like a nun singing to heaven. It reminded him so much of the mouth and eyes of one who sings beside a Botticelli Madonna, so spiritual. Again, hot as steel, came up the pain in him. Why must he ask her for the other thing? Why was there his blood battling with her? If only he could have been always gentle, tender with her, breathing with her the atmosphere of reverie and religious dreams, he would give his right hand. It was not fair to hurt her. There seemed an eternal maidenhood about her, and when he thought of her mother, he saw the great brown eyes of a maiden who was nearly scared and shocked out of her virgin maidenhood, but not quite, in spite of her seven children. They had been born almost leaving her out of count, not of her, but upon her. So she could never let them go, because she never had possessed them. Mrs. Morrell saw him going again frequently to Miriam, and was astonished. He said nothing to his mother. He did not explain nor excuse himself. If he came home late, and she reproached him, he frowned and turned on her in an overbearing way. "'I shall come home when I like,' he said. "'I am old enough.' "'Must she keep you till this time?' "'It is I who stay,' he answered. "'And she lets you. But very well,' she said. And she went to bed, leaving the door unlocked for him. But she lay listening until he came, often long after. It was a great bitterness to her that he had gone back to Miriam. She recognized, however, the uselessness of any further interference. He went to Willie Farm as a man now, not as a youth. She had no right over him. There was a coldness between him and her. He hardly told her anything. Discarded, she waited on him, cooked for him still, and loved to slave for him, but her face was closed again like a mask. There was nothing for her to do now but the housework. For all the rest, he had gone to Miriam. She could not forgive him. Miriam killed the joy and the warmth in him. He had been such a jolly lad, and full of the warmest affection. Now he grew colder, more and more irritable and gloomy. It reminded her of William, but Paul was worse. He did things with more intensity, and more realization of what he was about. His mother knew how he was suffering for want of a woman, and she saw him going to Miriam. If he had made up his mind, nothing on earth would alter him. Mrs. Morrell was tired. She began to give up at last. She had finished. She was in the way. He went on determinedly. He realized more or less what his mother felt. It only hardened his soul. He made himself callous towards her but it was like being callous to his own health. It undermined him quickly, yet he persisted. He lay back in the rocking-chair at Willie Farm one evening. He had been talking to Miriam for some weeks, but had not come to the point. Now he said suddenly, "'I am twenty-four, almost.' She had been brooding. She looked up at him suddenly in surprise. "'Yes. What makes you say it?' There was something in the charged atmosphere that she dreaded. "'Sir Thomas More says one can marry at twenty-four. She laughed quaintly, saying, "'Does it need Sir Thomas More's sanction?' "'No, but one 
ought to marry about then. I, she answered broodingly, and she waited. I can't marry you, he continued slowly. Not now, because we've no money, and they depend on me at home. She sat half-guessing what was coming. But I want to marry now. You want to marry? she repeated. A woman. You know what I mean. She was silent. Now, at last, I must, he said. I? she answered. And you love me? She laughed bitterly. Why are you ashamed of it? he answered. You wouldn't be ashamed before your God. Why are you before people? Nay, she answered deeply. I am not ashamed. You are, he replied bitterly. And it's my fault. But you know I can't help being as I am, don't you? I know you can't help it, she replied. I love you an awful lot. Then there is something short. Where? she answered, looking at him. Oh, in me. It is I who ought to be ashamed, like a spiritual cripple. And I am ashamed. It is misery. Why is it? I don't know, replied Miriam. And I don't know, he repeated. Don't you think we have been too fierce in our what they call purity? Don't you think that to be so much afraid and averse is a sort of dirtiness? She looked at him with startled, dark eyes. You recoiled away from anything of the sort, and I took the notion from you, and recoiled also, perhaps worse. There was silence in the room for some time. Yes, she said, it is so. There is between us, he said, all these years of intimacy. I feel naked enough before you. Do you understand? I think so, she answered. And you love me? She laughed. Don't be bitter, he pleaded. She looked at him and was sorry for him. His eyes were dark with torture. She was sorry for him. It was worse for him to have this deflated love than for herself, who could never be properly mated. He was restless, forever urging forward and trying to find a way out. He might do as he liked, and have what he liked of her. Nay, she said softly, I am not bitter. She felt she could bear anything for him. She would suffer for him. She put her hand on his knee as he leaned forward in his chair. He took it and kissed it. But it hurt to do so. He felt he was putting himself aside. He sat there sacrificed to her purity, which felt more like nullity. How could he kiss her hand passionately, when it would drive her away and leave nothing but pain? Yet slowly he drew her to him, and kissed her. They knew each other too well to pretend anything. As she kissed him, she watched his eyes. They were staring across the room with a peculiar dark blaze in them that fascinated her. 
He was perfectly still. She could feel his heart throbbing heavily in his breast. "'What are you thinking about?' she asked. The blaze in his eyes shuddered, became uncertain. "'I was thinking, all the while, I love you. I have been obstinate.' She sank her head upon his breast. "'Yes,' she answered. "'That's all,' he said, and his voice seemed sure, and his mouth was kissing her throat. Then she raised her head and looked into his eyes with her full gaze of love. The blaze struggled, seemed to try to get away from her, and then was quenched. He turned his head quickly aside. It was a moment of anguish. "'Kiss me,' she whispered. He shut his eyes and kissed her, and his arms folded her closer and closer. When she walked home with him over the fields, he said, "'I'm glad I came back to you. I feel so simple with you, as if there was nothing to hide. We will be happy?' "'Yes,' she murmured, and the tears came to her eyes." Some sort of perversity in our souls, he said, makes us not want, get away from, the very thing we want. We have to fight against that. Yes, she said, and she felt stunned. As she stood under the drooping thorn tree, in the darkness by the roadside, he kissed her, and his fingers wandered over her face. In the darkness, where he could not see her but only feel her, his passion flooded him. He clasped her very close. "'Sometime you will have me?' he murmured, hiding his face on her shoulder. It was so difficult. "'Not now,' she said. His hopes and his heart sunk. A dreariness came over him. "'No,' he said. His clasp of her slackened. I love to feel your arm there," she said, pressing his arm against her back, where it went round her waist. It rests me so. He tightened the pressure of his arm upon the small of her back to rest her. We belong to each other, he said. Yes. Then why shouldn't we belong to each other altogether? But, she faltered. I know it's a lot to ask, he said, but there's not much risk for you, really, not in the Gretchen way. You can trust me there? Oh, I can trust you. The answer came quick and strong. It's not that. It's not that at all, but— What? She hid her face in his neck with a little cry of misery. I don't know, she cried. She seemed slightly hysterical, but with a sort of horror. His heart died in him. "'You don't think it ugly?' he asked. "'No, not now. You have taught me it isn't.' "'You are afraid?' She calmed herself hastily. "'Yes, I am only afraid,' she said. He kissed her tenderly. "'Never mind,' he said. You should please yourself. Suddenly she gripped his arms round her and clenched her body stiff. You shall have me, she said through her shut teeth. 
His heart beat up again like fire. He folded her close, and his mouth was on her throat. She could not bear it. She drew away. He disengaged her. "'Won't you be late?' she asked, gently. He sighed, scarcely hearing what she said. She waited, wishing he would go. At last he kissed her quickly and climbed the fence. Looking round he saw the pale blotch of her face down in the darkness under the hanging tree. There was no more of her but this pale blotch. "'Good-bye,' she called softly. She had no body, only a voice and a dim face. He turned away and ran down the road, his fists clenched, and when he came to the wall over the lake he leaned there, almost stunned, looking up the black water. Miriam plunged home over the meadows. She was not afraid of people, what they might say, but she dreaded the issue with him. Yes, she would let him have her if he insisted. And then, when she thought of it afterwards, her heart went down. He would be disappointed. He would find no satisfaction, and then he would go away. Yet he was so insistent, and over this, which did not seem so all-important to her, was their love to break down. After all, he was only like other men, seeking his satisfaction. Oh, but there was something more in him, something deeper. She could trust to it, in spite of all desires. He said that possession was a great moment in life. All strong emotions concentrated there. Perhaps it was so. There was something divine in it. Then she would submit, religiously, to the sacrifice. He should have her. And, at the thought, her whole body clenched itself involuntarily, hard, as if against something. But life forced her through this gate of suffering, too, and she would submit. At any rate, it would give him what he wanted, which was her deepest wish. She brooded and brooded and brooded herself towards accepting him. He courted her now, like a lover. Often, when he grew hot, she put his face from her, held it between her hands, and looked in his eyes. He could not meet her gaze. Her dark eyes, full of love, earnest and searching, made him turn away. Not for an instant would she let him forget. Back again he had to torture himself into a sense of his responsibility, and hers. Never any relaxing, never any leaving himself to the great hunger and impersonality of passion. He must be brought back to a deliberate, reflective creature. As if from a swoon of passion, she called him back to the littleness, the personal relationship. He could not bear it. "'Leave me alone! Leave me alone!' He wanted to cry, but she wanted him to look at her with eyes full of love. His eyes, full of the dark, impersonal fire of desire, did not belong to her. There was a great crop of cherries at the farm. The trees at the back of the house, very large and tall, hung thick with scarlet and crimson drops under the dark leaves. Paul and Edgar were gathering the fruit one evening. It had been a hot day— and now the clouds were rolling in the sky, dark and warm. Paul climbed high in the tree, above the scarlet roofs of the buildings. The wind, moaning steadily, made the whole tree rock with a subtle, thrilling motion that stirred the blood. 
the young man, perched insecurely in the slender branches, rocked till he felt slightly drunk, reached down the boughs, where the scarlet beady cherries hung thick underneath, and tore off handful after handful of the sleek, cool-fleshed fruit. Cherries touched his ears and his neck as he stretched forward, their chill fingertips sending a flash down his blood. All shades of red, from a golden vermilion to a rich crimson, glowed and met his eyes under a darkness of leaves. The sun, going down, suddenly caught the broken clouds. Immense piles of gold flared out in the southeast, heaped in soft glowing yellow right up the sky. The world, till now dusk and grey, reflected the gold glow, astonished. Everywhere the trees, and the grass, and the far-off water, seemed roused from the twilight and shining. Miriam came out wondering. "'Oh!' Paul heard her mellow voice call. "'Isn't it wonderful?' He looked down. There was a faint gold glimmer on her face, that looked very soft, turned up to him. "'How high you are!' she said. Beside her, on the rhubarb leaves, were four dead birds, thieves that had been shot. Paul saw some cherry-stones hanging quite bleached, like skeletons picked clear of flesh. He looked down again to Miriam. "'Clouds are on fire,' he said. "'Beautiful!' she cried. She seemed so small, so soft, so tender down there. He threw a handful of cherries at her. She was startled and frightened. He laughed with a low chuckling sound and pelted her. She ran for shelter, picking up some cherries. Two fine red pears she hung over her ears. Then she looked up again. "'Haven't you got enough?' she asked. "'Nearly. It's like being on a ship up here.' "'And how long will you stay?' "'While the sunset lasts.' She went to the fence and sat there, watching the gold clouds fall to pieces, and go in immense rose-coloured ruin towards the darkness. Gold flamed to scarlet, like pain in its intense brightness. Then the scarlet sank to rose, and rose to crimson, and quickly the passion went out of the sky. All the world was dark grey. Paul scrambled quickly down with his basket, tearing his shirt-sleeve as he did so. "'They are lovely,' said Miriam, fingering the cherries. "'I've torn my sleeve,' he answered. She took the three-cornered rip, saying, "'I shall have to mend it.' It was near the shoulder. She put her fingers through the tear. "'How warm!' she said. He laughed. There was a new, strange note in his voice, one that made her pant. "'Shall we stay out?' he said. "'Won't it rain?' she asked. "'No, let us walk a little way.' They went down the fields and into the thick plantation of fir-trees and pines. "'Shall we go in among the trees?' he asked. "'Do you want to?' "'Yes.' It was very dark among the firs, and the sharp spines pricked her face. She was afraid. Paul was silent and strange. "'I like the darkness,' he said. "'I wish it were thicker. Good, thick darkness.' He seemed to be almost unaware of her as a person. 
She was only to him then a woman. She was afraid. He stood against a pine-tree trunk and took her in his arms. She relinquished herself to him, but it was a sacrifice in which she felt something of horror. This thick-voiced, oblivious man was a stranger to her. Later it began to rain. The pine-tree smelled very strong. Paul lay with his head on the ground, on the dead pine-needles, listening to the sharp hiss of the rain, a steady, keen noise. His heart was down, very heavy. Now he realized that she had not been with him all the time, that her soul had stood apart in a sort of horror. He was physically at rest, but no more. Very dreary at heart, very sad, and very tender, his fingers wandered over her face pitifully. Now again she loved him deeply. He was tender and beautiful. "'The rain,' he said. "'Yes, is it coming on you?' She put her hands over him, on his hair, on his shoulders, to feel if the raindrops fell on him. She loved him dearly. He, as he lay with his face on the dead pine leaves, felt extraordinarily quiet. He did not mind if the raindrops came on him. He would have lain and got wet through. He felt as if nothing mattered, as if his living were smeared away into the beyond, near and quite lovable. This strange, gentle reaching out to death was new to him. "'We must go,' said Miriam. "'Yes,' he answered, but did not move. To him now life seemed a shadow, day a white shadow, night and death and stillness and inaction. This seemed like being. To be alive, to be urgent and insistent, that was not to be. The highest of all was to melt out into the darkness and sway there, identified with the great being. "'The rain is coming in on us,' said Miriam. He rose and assisted her. "'It is a pity,' he said. "'What?' "'To have to go. I feel so still.' "'Still,' she repeated. "'Stiller than I have ever been in my life.' He was walking with his hand in hers. She pressed his fingers, feeling a slight fear. Now he seemed beyond her. She had a fear lest she should lose him. The fir-trees are like presents on the darkness, each one only a presence. She was afraid and said nothing. A sort of hush, the whole night wandering and asleep. I suppose that's what we do in death, sleep in wonder. She had been afraid before of the brute in him, now of the mystic. She trod beside him in silence. The rain fell with a heavy hush on the trees. At last they gained the cart-shed. "'Let us stay here a while,' he said. There was a sound of rain everywhere, smothering everything. "'I feel so strange and still,' he said, along with everything. "'I,' she answered patiently. He seemed again unaware of her, though he held her hand close. "'To be rid of our individuality, which is our will,' which is our effort. To live effortless, a kind of curious sleep, that is very beautiful, I think. That is our afterlife, our immortality. Yes? 
Yes, and very beautiful to have. You don't usually say that. No. In a while they went indoors. Everybody looked at them curiously. He kept the quiet, heavy look in his eyes, the stillness in his voice. Instinctively they all left him alone. About this time Miriam's grandmother, who lived in a tiny cottage in Woodlinton, fell ill, and the girl was sent to keep house. It was a beautiful little place. The cottage had a big garden in front, with red brick walls, against which the plum-trees were nailed. At the back another garden was separated from the fields by a tall old hedge. It was very pretty. Miriam had not much to do, so she found time for her beloved reading, and for writing little introspective pieces which interested her. At the holiday time her grandmother, being better, was driven to Derby to stay with her daughter for a day or two. She was a crotchety old lady, and might return the second day, or the third, so Miriam stayed alone in the cottage, which also pleased her. Paul used often to cycle over, and they had, as a rule, peaceful and happy times. He did not embarrass her much, but then on the Monday of the holiday he was to spend a whole day with her. It was perfect weather. He left his mother, telling her where he was going. She would be alone all the day. It cast a shadow over him, but he had three days that were all his own, when he was going to do as he liked. It was sweet to rush through the morning lanes on his bicycle. He got to the cottage at about eleven o'clock. Miriam was busy preparing dinner. She looked so perfectly in keeping with the little kitchen, ruddy and busy. He kissed her and sat down to watch. The room was small and cosy. The sofa was covered all over with a sort of linen in squares of red and pale blue, old, much washed, but pretty. There was a stuffed owl in a case over a corner cupboard. The sunlight came through the leaves of the scented geraniums in the window. She was cooking a chicken in his honour. It was their cottage for the day, and they were man and wife. He beat the eggs for her and peeled the potatoes. He thought she gave a feeling of home almost like his mother, and no one could look more beautiful with her tumbled curls when she was flushed from the fire. The dinner was a great success. Like a young husband, he carved. They talked all the time with unflagging zest. Then he wiped the dishes she had washed, and they went out down the fields. There was a bright little brook that ran into a bog at the foot of a very steep bank. Here they wandered, picking still a few marsh marigolds and many big blue forget-me-nots. Then she sat on the bank with her hands full of flowers, mostly golden water-blobs. As she put her face down into the marigolds, it was all overcast with a yellow shine. "'Your face is bright,' he said. "'Like a transfiguration.' She looked at him, questioning. He laughed pleadingly to her laying his hands on hers. Then he kissed her fingers, then her face. The world was all steeped in sunshine, and quite still, yet not asleep, but quivering with a kind of expectancy. "'I have never seen anything more beautiful than this,' he said. He held her hand fast all the time. 
and the water singing to itself as it runs. Do you love it? She looked at him, full of love. His eyes were very dark, very bright. Don't you think it's a great day? he asked. She murmured her assent. She was happy, and he saw it. And our day, just between us, he said. They lingered a little while. Then they stood up upon the sweet thyme, and he looked down at her simply. "'Will you come?' he asked. They went back to the house, hand in hand, in silence. The chickens came scampering down the path to her. He locked the door, and they had the little house to themselves. He never forgot seeing her as she lay on the bed, when he was unfastening his collar. First he saw only her beauty, and was blind with it. She had the most beautiful body he had ever imagined. He stood unable to move or speak, looking at her, his face half-smiling with wonder. And then he wanted her. But as he went forward to her, her hands lifted in a little pleading movement, and he looked at her face and stopped. Her big brown eyes were watching him, still and resigned and loving. She lay as if she had given herself up to sacrifice. There was her body for him. But the look at the back of her eyes, like a creature awaiting immolation, arrested him, and all his blood fell back. "'You are sure you want me?' he asked, as if a cold shadow had come over him. "'Yes, quite sure.' End of Part 1 of Chapter 11